The following audio is from a sermon series called ReChurch, Rediscovering the Church. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. One quick announcement before we jump in. We have a fight club seminar at three o'clock. It's going to be at the center. We do have babysitting available there. Uh, What is a fight club? A fight club is a group. It's our smallest kind of gathering that we have at Sacred City. It's where a group of three men or three women, four or five, they gather together and they they, they seek to understand the gospel. They seek to study theology. They seek to... They seek to go deeper into their faith together and fight their sin together. And kind of the way we do that is really distinct. And you need to know kind of how the heart works and then how the gospel works as you apply it to our hearts. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So anyone who wants to be a part of a fight club, you need to be there at the seminar three o'clock today at the center. Okay. Inviting you come on out. Even if you're not a part of a missional community, you just want to check this out. I think it'll be a great opportunity um, for you to, today at three o'clock. So let me go ahead and pray. Father, I I thank you again of just this great day. I thank you for all the people that you've brought into your gathering. I thank you for the people that you've brought into your body. I thank you for the great calling um, upon each and one of our lives. And I, and I ask today that your spirit would be here in a special way that you would um, literally guide my thoughts and think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords and you would, um, the, the, the anointing and the, and the, the spirit of God would be on my words and, and you would help us hear correctly We all have so many presuppositions. We all have so many filters that we filter things through that you would uh, do what only the word of God can do through the spirit of God. And you would pierce through all those things and you would pierce our hearts and you would let us hear uh, the word of the Lord that you would have for us this morning and not the word of man and not our own opinions. Um, so that we could see you in your excellencies and we could exalt you and worship you and glorify you uh, and enjoy you in all of our life in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So we've been, this is our last week in ReChurch, three weeks talking, kind of rediscovering the church, rediscovering the purpose of the church. And if you're, if you're familiar with the, with Jonathan Dodson and the book gospel centered discipleship, it's kind of the foundation. We do a lot of our fight club stuff on. He speaks in that book about three conversions to the Christian that the Christian, many of us only know of one conversion. Right? Are you converted to Christ? Are you a believer? Many people think that Christianity kind of stops there. But Dodson says that's unhelpful for most people. We need to think of the, the Christian life as actually three different conversions. Okay? He talks about a conversion to Christ when we give our lives to Christ. Then he talks about a conversion to community where we give our lives to another group of people. And we say, all right, these are my people and I'm going to live life together with them. And then he talks about third, the commu- a conversion to mission. All right. Oh, now I see myself as, as someone who's meant to spread the gospel and share the gospel. Now, I think it's helpful to kind of separate those, but then it can be unhelpful in the same way because there aren't actually three different conversions, right? 
We actually are only converted once, but we go deeper into our conversion. We go deeper into Christ and we realize that we're sa- we were saved for community. We saw it last week. And then also we were saved for mission, which is what we're going to talk about this week. See, often when we come to Jesus Christ, it's a deeply personal thing. That's great. God takes a person from darkness into his marvelous light. That's what conversion is. See, you are saved. You are a brand new creation in God's sight. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you go to church. It doesn't mean you become a member. It doesn't mean you've prayed a prayer. Conversion means you lived your life in a sense of darkness, and now you've been awakened to the reality of God, the reality of Jesus Christ. But then we saw last week that God doesn't save individuals and then leave them there on their own. God saves individuals and then brings them into his community called the church. So once I come to see that in scripture and I come to understand that I was made for community by community, I am converted to community and then I embrace my identity as a member of the family of God with all the messiness that 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 comes with that, right? But God doesn't stop there and neither should we. Not only have I been saved for community, we are God's people, right? Saved by God's power for God's purposes. What is God's purpose? God's purpose for us is his mission. I read a new statistic this week from the Gordon Conwell Center for the Study of Global Christianity. That's what it says. Listen to this. The study showed that one out of five non-Christians in North America doesn't know any Christians. One out of five non-Christians in North America doesn't even know any Christians. 20% of our culture has no relationship, has no relational capital with another Christian. That statistic bothered me. That statistic bothers me. It should bother us. It should concern us greatly. Because most people come to faith through a relationship. Either a family member or a friend shares the gospel with them, invites them into a community where they can hear the gospel, or brings them into a gathering like this of God's people where they can hear the gospel. Right? That's God, con- God converts people through the preaching of the gospel. Right, That's one of the ways he does it. It's the main way he does it. But one in five people in our country don't even have a person like that in their life. That should break, that, that should break our heart. That should deeply concern us. That, that should show us that we have a lot of work to do in the Quad Cities here. And it's my prayer that every single person in our city has a relationship, listen, has a relationship with another Christian. Not everyone will be a Christian. That's not my prayer, that everyone would be a Christian. That's kind of a foolish prayer. Not everyone will be a Christian. But it's good and it's right that everyone should at least know a Christian so that they have an opportunity to see the grace of God at work in a real person's life. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to exposit a text. One of the most important texts on the church in all the New Testament. 
And then I plan on something I usually don't do. I plan on getting really practical at the end and kind of giving us some homework. I'm not very practical preacher. I like to preach big things and say, go figure that out. All right. Listen to the podcast, rewind it, play it again. All right. But today I'm going to try at the end to get real practical. So we're talking about God's mission today. What does that mean? We're, and it, it, I'm going to tell you, if you've sat in a pew or a ch- church seat for a long time, you might already start be getting uncomfortable, sweating, thinking, oh, another guilt trip. Here it comes. I know I should preach the gospel. I should wear a big sandwich board downtown and yell at people at the end is near. I get it, right? That's not what we're talking about. Listen, you might really struggle with sharing your faith and you might have a lot of fear when it comes to being on mission. Or you might think, what is he talking about? I'm not a missionary. I'm just a person who wants to go to heaven. I'm not a missionary. I didn't sign up to be a missionary. I just signed up because heaven's a whole lot better than the other place. If that's you, I think it's a lot of us probably, I think you've got an identity problem. You don't know who you are. You don't know who God has made you, who God has saved you into. So we're going to go and we're going to study this text today. We're going to see what has God made us into? What is a Christian supposed to look like? What, who are we? What is our identity? So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Get on your app, whatever you got. Follow along with us. 1 Peter is towards the back of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. When you're there, say there. My workman today, I got to roll up my sleeves. We're about to get in this text. We ready to do this? Okay, here we go. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, let me stop right here. First off, just so you know, Peter is writing to a group of people. They're not the same race, okay? They're all different races. They're all different blood. They're all different ethnicities. They're all different types of people, different backgrounds. He's writing to the church, God's body, Right? The body of Christ. So it's important for us not to read that through like our American viewpoint. This is a chosen race. Oh, yeah. You know, he's not talking to us, right? He's not talking to specific ethnicity. Let's keep reading. A holy nation. It's not us. I'm sorry. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, first off, we're going to look at Peter starts off by saying, this is who you are. This is your identity. And he starts off with this um, because many of us need to understand all of this. This right here, this will help you read the Bible with a gospel-centered lens. Everything God requires of you, he's given you. Everything God asks from you, he's already given you. God God requires nothing from you that he hasn't already given you. He doesn't ask you to do things that he doesn't provide. He's already provided you with the ability and the power to get that stuff done through his spirit. 
Okay? So we talk a lot about at Sacred City about indicatives versus imperatives in the Bible. An indicative is this. This is what God has done. Because of what he's done, this is who you are. Because this is true, imperatives. Now go and do this. Go and live like this. This is absolutely critical for you to understand the gospel. There's a huge difference between indicatives and imperatives. Right? I tell my son, son, you're my son because of my work and my wife's. She did a little bit. Right? That makes you my son. And then I say, act like my son. Live out that identity. Be honorable, be respectful, be a a sharp young man. Do that because you are my son. Now, I want you to know, son, that you are so loved and you're so accepted. And this is an identity that I've bestowed upon you. You're so loved that you want to do these things, right? Now, it would be wicked. And this is what the church has done throughout history. This is what the human heart does is we want to flip these things. We want to say, go act like a son, So you, you know, and if you're good enough, then I'll make you my son. If you're good enough, Christian, then I'll make you a Christian. There's no such thing. That's just, but that's what we think. There's no such thing as a good enough Christian, right? You can't behave your way into this thing. So there's this difference between indicatives and imperatives, who I am, what I do. And we have to see this. And we start with indicatives and then we move to imperatives. And that's what Peter is doing in this text. And how does he start? Whoa, I got a little excited flipping Bible pages. Here we go. Verse 9. But you are a what? Chosen race. A chosen race. Now, obviously, or maybe not obvious. I need to let you know. This is not um, a racial This is not, he chose black, he chose white, he chose Indian, he chose Asian. This is not a, this is a new chosen race because he's speaking to all different races in this text. And he's saying, no longer are you related by your blood, you are now related by my blood. You are all equal in the blood of Christ as the body of Christ. But he uses this word that we've got to study. And many of you, you're you're going to have tingles up your spine. The hair is going to stand on the back of your neck. You're going to start getting sweaty because I'm using the word chosen. But we have to study this. We have to look at it. You are a chosen race. In the Greek, this word is eklektos. Elect. You are elect. That's what we mean when we say we are people of God who've been saved by the power of God. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us. Now, we've got to talk about this a little bit. We, what does it mean to be elect? What does it mean to be chosen? It means that God... In his sovereignty, in his free will, and his absolute, there's no pressure on him. He's in heaven. He does as he pleases. It means he has chosen you to come out of darkness, the darkness that we are all born into because of what's called original sin and, and our actual sin. We're born into this sinful condition that we're blind to God. We're born into darkness. And what it means to be chosen is God chose you to come out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, what does that mean? Listen, and and I'm going to try to be really clear 
but I'm going to, I'll raise probably as many questions as I answer today, but I'm just going to throw out a bunch of things. What does it mean to be called by God? Does it mean like I call my kids home from dinner? Javin, Zoe, come on, it's time for dinner. And Javin, because he's a little obedient boy, he runs home and Zoe goes, nah, I'm not really into dinner right now. I'm having fun with my friends. Thanks though, dad. I'll come when I feel like it. Many people believe that the calling of God, that the gospel going out, that God calling and electing is like me calling my daughter. Hey, hey, Zoe, come home. And she's like, eh, not really. Don't feel like it. That it's up to the other person. Now listen, that, I'm just going to be really, I'm going to to have to move because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. There's a lot of identity pieces here and they're all pregnant with quadruplets and I could, I could talk for hours on each one. So let me just say it's like this. When Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gave us a great picture of what calling looks like, what election looks like. When his good friend Lazarus, if you remember from the New Testament, Lazarus died. Right? Sisters are wailing. Everybody's crying about it. He stinketh. I love the, new, I love the King James Version. He stinketh. All right? He, he's dead. He's gone. And he stinketh. Right? He's been dead for a while. And Jesus walks up and goes, don't worry about it. I got this. Right? And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. He calls Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. He stinketh, right? Jesus, and I love it. Theologians say the reason he says Lazarus is because if he would have just said, come forth, everybody in every tomb would have come walking up out of it. So he says, Lazarus, all you other guys just enjoy heaven, but Lazarus, come forth. Now, what did Lazarus bring to the table? How did, was Lazarus there, you know, this is just kind of funny to me. Lazarus is probably in heaven at the time. He's in, he, I doubt he wants to come back. Right? And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus contributes absolutely nothing to his new birth. Lazarus contributes nothing to being brought from death to life. He is called. And what, guess what? When the king of the universe, when the author of our salvation calls us, guess what happens? The dead come to life. He doesn't give Lazarus the option. He doesn't throw this universal call out there to all the dead people. All right, dead people, whoever wants to be risen, come out. And there's this one dead guy, Lazarus, who said, you know what? I really want to be saved. I'm going to get up out of this thing. It was not a universal call. It was a specific call to one man. Jesus could have called everybody to come forth. He called Lazarus. Get up. That dead body gets up. That's what it means to be called. That the God of the universe speaks life into some people and they respond to it. They get up. They're they're born again. Now, I could spend all day talking about this. And I, I, I rarely do what I'm about to do which is a, just a, a high-level flyover and just drop a lot of Scripture on you. I don't do it very often, but I'm going to do it today because it's important for us to get this, okay? Listen to this. John fifteen sixteen. Jesus says this, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. 
Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to this. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them to eternal life? And thus they believed. God appointed them to eternal life. Listen, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. Listen, before the foundation of the world. When were we chosen? Before the foundation of the world. That he predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Before the foundations of the world, we were predestined. Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. It couldn't be any clearer than that. God has chosen you for salvation. Listen to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. The names of the chosen written in the lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. God chose us. He chose us in eternity. He chose us before the world began. He repeats it in Revelation 17 and verse 8. And in Revelation 20 verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And when when were the names written? Before the foundations of the world. And so, oh, I could go dozens, maybe hundreds more scriptures. Over and over and over and over again, the testimony of Scripture is that we were chosen. Chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ by God. Why? Because we were great? No. Because He sovereignly determined to set His love upon us for His holy purposes, which we may never fully understand. He did it by grace for grace. He did it to show his goodness and his greatness. And Deuteronomy says he loved us because he loved us. You only get that when you look at your kid. If you don't have kids, you don't get that yet. You love them because they love them. That's what God does. Now, listen. This doctrine has been grossly misinterpreted and grossly mistaught in times past. Horribly. When I became a Christian, I heard these rumors about Calvinism. What what is Calvinism? Oh, Calvinism is God hates some people and he loves some people and he just sends some people to hell just because he likes to. Really? Well, that's just, I don't like that God. I just dismissed that then. And I grew up in this culture where Calvinism, election, predestination was just dismissed. As this caricature of the frozen chosen, of people who are lifeless and don't care about mission and don't care about salvation of other people. And they're just real arrogant and haughty and they think they're chosen and other are not chosen. And if you're chosen, that means your choices don't matter. And God just, you know, we're just little robots and we move around the table. If you think that's what Calvinism is, you are grossly mistaken. You have been mistaught and it's been misrepresented. But listen, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? 
We don't want to dismiss a caricature of Calvinism and, in, and, and accidentally dismiss the real thing, which is a, a solid biblical understanding of election, predestination, and salvation. If I had to make it really simple, what does it mean to be saved by God? It means he does all the work that I would never, never, never choose God because I'm sitting in my own darkness. I'm completely blind to all things. I'm dead in my sin and I would never choose God. But God, by his grace, awakens me. It brings about so much joy in my heart. It's the, I'm going to tell you, it's the deepest well of my joy in my life. It's the deepest well. It's where I go to when all my circumstances around me are telling me that God doesn't love me, that I'm difficult, that my sin is bad. All of these things. Where do I go? I don't go to my current circumstances. I go to the deep well of the sovereignty of God in my election. That I have a desire for God solely because God put that desire in me. That God has set his love upon me. That I was chosen before the foundations of the world. Even when I don't feel it, it's a deep well of joy. That's what it's meant to be for us. Now listen, if you think, when when this doctrine is mistaught, and we could even say uh, hyper-Calvinism, right? We kind of want to, the way it's mistaught most of the time is this hyper-Calvinism that your choices don't matter, right? When when, When this doctrine of election and predestination is mistaught, it leads to a coldness, an aloofness, a deadness, an algebraic outlook on salvation. We want to get in the minutia and realize what comes first, A plus B plus C equals, like we want to get in there and dig it out. That's not what it's meant for. See, scripture is, is really clear. It's not cloudy on this issue. Election is staunchly biblical and when taught correctly, it should be a source of immense joy. So, listen, if, Mm. don't reject Calvinism, don't reject predestination, don't reject election until you really get in there. C.S. Lewis says this, most of the time, the doctrines that we have a hard time understanding, the doctrines that we want to reject, most of the time, those are the very ones we need the most. Because they're the ones that are so not like us. They're the ones that Jesus really wants to open something new up into our heart if we see them and if we believe them. And election and predestination is like that. And I want you to know, from a guy who grew up, I grew up rejecting it. I grew up dismissing it. I grew up seeing this caricature and saying, no way. To a guy who now, through scripture, sees the beauty of it, embraces it fully. I'm going to tell you, there's deep joy in it. So, I'm just going to let you know, like, at Sacred City, you don't have to be a Calvinist to be a part of Sacred City. But I just want to let you know, we are jovial Calvinists. And there's a big difference. The reason I put the word jovial there is because we believe it, it's a great joy. It's a great source of joy in our life. And it, uh, also, you know, Calvinists can get this caricature of being mean and cold and aggressive and wanting to point. And there are people like that want to point people and say, you must not be elect and you're going to hell. and all. That's not what we want. We want to be jovial Calvinists. So, here we are. Peter says, the first thing that you need to know about the church is that they have been chosen by God. The ESV study Bible says this on this term. God's grace, rather than human choice, is the ultimate explanation for why some people come to faith 
and others do not. You are here this morning. So, so let, me, let me just let you know right here. Do your choices matter? Absolutely they matter. Every single choice you matter, may, every single choice you make matters even into eternity. Your choices matter. That's a caricature. Oh, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then our choices must not matter. He just does everything he wants and we don't have any... No, 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 no. God predestines us. God elects us even through our choices. So don't dismiss it and think that I'm saying your choices don't matter. Absolutely, they matter. They carry great weight. Man, I wish I had more time for this. Like I said, each one of these statements are just just pregnant with quadruplets. We could just get in there and just... There's tons of weight there. We could spend all day talking about each one. And each one, if, you're, if you notice, each one has significant Old Testament roots. I hope you kind of, you hope your ears were kind of uh, perked up after we just went through uh, over a year in the book of Genesis. I hope you picked up these words like chosen race and royal priesthood and a people for his own possession. That's Old Testament language. But remember, in the Old Testament... Each one of those terms referenced Israel, a specific ethnic group of people, the Hebrews. But now in the New Testament, Peter's saying this is going out to everybody. This call is going out to all. That You are all now one chosen race in the blood of Christ. Secondly, you are a royal priesthood. Now listen, this, this is an interesting term. Royal priesthood. What's a priest? A priest is someone who goes to God on behalf of others. A priest is someone who, who prays to others. Prays for others, I'm sorry. Prays to God for others. A priest is kind of an intermediary. And this is unique because in the Old Testament, there was a specific group of people, again, that were, they were uh, the Levites, right? They, they came from Abraham, one of the tribes. They were the Levites, and they, they, were, the, um, they were the priests. They were the, the one people that could go into the tabernacle and can offer sacrifices and could pray to God on behalf of the people. But what happens in the New Testament, what happens in the church, is God says, no, 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 this is cool. You're all priests priests now. You now are a kingdom of priests. You don't need another intermediary because you have Jesus Christ who is our ultimate priest who stands in the presence of God and and is our intermediary, a mediator for us. So now therefore you're all priests and you should all pray for others and you should all go to God on behalf of your family, on behalf of your friends. You're all royal priesthood. It's a great term. And again, I wish I could spend all day on that one because also... See, Lewis talks about this. I'm, I'm, you're going to be hearing a lot of Lewis quotes because I'm, I'm back in a, a Lewis phase, so I'm reading a bunch of C.S. Lewis again. Lewis says that we, ha- we, have, we all are born with this sense of being an outsider, that, that we want to be in. I remember from grade school on, you would look around the room and you'd find the cool people and you'd have a sense that you were outside that and you want to be in that. So what, what, what did they do back in my day? You know, like, oh, okay, to be in, you've got to tight roll your jeans. Okay, I can do that. I can tie. Oh, you want to see the white side? Okay, I can see the white side, right? This Zach, I had the Zach Morris of the inn, right? Like, if you know anything about that, if you're born in the ni- or if, if you were raised in the '90s, so there's this sense of being an outsider and wanting to be in. Well, that's kind of what a priest does. Is a priest is someone who brings other people in to the presence of God. That, that there's a sense that we're all outsiders, but the priest, he gets to go in, he gets a special privilege, that he gets to be in the presence of God, and then he can kind of bring others in as he sees fit. Well, that's what you get. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, you've all been made a kingdom of priests, you've been made insiders, and now you have this gift to bring others in. 
You have this ability to pray to God, the God of the universe, the God of election, the God of grace, for, on the behalf of your friends, of your neighbors, of your colleagues. It's a great gift. <clears throat> I, I, man, I want to spend more time. Third, so a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. A holy nation. I love this. A holy nation. And, and Tim Keller says, this is a counterculture, not a subculture. A counterculture, not a subculture. What is a subculture? A subculture is you can belong to a bowling league, and you go to this bowling league, and they kind of, everybody talks the same language, but they got these different terms, and they wear different shoes, and they've got you know their own little terminology. But you're still a part of, our, let's say we're in America. You're an American culture, but bowling, American culture bowling league is kind of like this little subculture. Right, and, or you could go to a you know an archery league, and, and they're all they're, they're American, but they're, 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 they got their own little lingo, and they all have their spe, you know the special stuff, and they've got those. And many times Christians believe that they're like that; they're a subculture of the world, and not a completely different counter culture. And listen to what Keller says: When Peter here says that Christians are a holy nation, frankly, what it means is when you become a Christian. It's not like you were in the bowling league and now you're going to the archery league. Christianity affects literally everything, everything. The way you do business, the way you think of yourself as a man or as a woman, the way you relate to other races, the way you do art and the way you see art, the way in which you spend your money, the way in which you think about money. That... Christianity is a holy nation. It's a completely countercultural way of seeing life. It changes everything about us. We're peculiar people. We're different. We have different values. Now, lastly, first, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and look, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. I'm going to let you know right here, if you get this little nugget, I don't think you'll ever be the same again. I don't think you'll ever um, struggle with your self-worth or self-pity. You'll never feel sorry for yourself again. If you see what Peter is saying right here, Peter is saying, God saved us. He chose us. He made us a holy nation because he wanted to. He saved us because he delights in us. That we are, through Christ, his treasured possession. Now, if you have kids, you might get this. Now, Javin, my son, he's six. I gave him one of my cigar boxes. I'm trying to trade him up in the way he should go. And, I, and this is a cigar box. It's his treasure box. Right? It's his treasure box. And as parents, you know, we want to know, what, what does he treasure? So we go in there and we open this treasure box up and it's got the most random assortment of things, right? It's got rocks and marbles and uh, money from when I was in Costa Rica, a little weird money, you know, like all, I mean, there's all kind of things that my son in his mind, he finds treasurable. He finds pleasurable. And these are his special little possessions that he puts in here that he wants to keep safe from other people, mostly from his sister, right? He wants to keep these things safe for himself. And I, I, Amanda and I both, we're like, it's so precious. 
so unique and so precious, the stuff that his little mind finds to be uh, special. Every single thing in there is something he personally delights in. Now listen, this, this is what's nuts. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in God's treasure box. If you're a believer. And listen, when I go to that treasure box, I look in, I go, oh, gravel. That's so nice, son. Right? It doesn't make sense to me, but his heart finds it treasurable. That's how we should see our election. God does not look down and go, oh, there's diamonds. I need those diamonds. Bring them into my body. He doesn't look down and see something valuable and see something special, and then therefore he chooses it. He sees a bunch of gravel, and because he wants to put his love on it, because he wants to make it valuable and make it special, he chooses this gravel, he brings it in, and, he's di- and we're diamonds in his box. It's unbelievable. He loves you because he loves you. Not because you're worth anything. Not because you are awesome. What he's saying here, what Peter is trying to to beat into their heads, the same thing we need beat into our heads. If you can get a grip on your identity, on the indicatives of who you are, That you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people specially possessed by God. You are in his treasure box. If you can get this, you'll have very little problems with the imperatives. If you can get it, there's going to be a power and a boldness to you. There will be a humility and a confidence, things that the world can't hold together. But in the gospel, we can. We can be humble. I was gravel. And we can be confident. I am his special possession. Humble and confident. And you will need, what you're going to see right, right away, is you need that power and that boldness. Because we are God's people, saved by God's power for God's purpose. And what is his purpose? What does he want us to do? What's our purpose? Look in the text. Let me read it all again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, here's our purpose, guys, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's your purpose? Lazarus, I pulled you out of the tomb so you can let everybody know. Lazarus, come on. Lazarus, come out. Let folks know who, mm, this is so good, who makes dead people walk. Why are we called into this marvelous light? Not because you're great. So you may proclaim the excellencies of the one who is great. So you could say, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Oh, let me illustrate this. You are blind. Here we go. Illustration. You are blind. You're born blind. You've been blind since childhood. But now you, you, you hear that there's this new procedure out there. There's this new doctor who's available and he's chosen you to receive this new procedure for free. 
There's, this is like a priceless opportunity for you. One of the top optometrists in all the world, he's with this brand new technology, with this brand new procedure, and you get chosen for free. It's a great moment, right? Like, the day comes and you are led by the hand. You're blind. You're led by the hand into the doctor's office. But guess what? That same day you walk out of the office with sight. Everything worked perfectly. You walk out a completely new person, right? The whole world looks differently now. You, 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 for the first time you experience the sunset and the sunrise and, and you can see, you've heard it for years, but now you can see the, the sun as it sparkles on the, the, the leaves of the tree and you can see the, the, the sun as it rises over water and you can see the light in your daughter's face or your son's face that everything in the world looks completely different. And what are you going to do? First off, that's excellent, Right? What just happened? You were blind. You thought you were going to be blind for life. You thought you are just going to go on in darkness or the shade of existence for your whole life. And in this moment, because of sheer grace, some doctor, you get chosen by free. You come in and it works and you walk out a new person. That's excellent. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to do what every single person does. You're going to brag on that doctor. You're going to tweet about it. You're going to Facebook about it. Right? You can tell your neighbors about it. You're going to call and you're going to FaceTime mama, whoever she's at. You're going to tell mama, I once was blind, but now I see. And it's not because I'm awesome. It's because this doctor chose me by sheer grace. You're going to enjoy that new eyesight. I imagine they're just going to all day long, seeing with new eyes. You're going to proclaim his excellencies to anyone who will listen. Am I right? Right? I once was blind, but now I see. That's what verse 9 is all about. God has called you like that blind person out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we now declare that. What does it mean to declare? What does it mean to declare? What does it mean to proclaim? First off, let me tell you this. So many people get so weirded out about evangelism, about sharing their faith. And and you know what? A lot of that is because pastors are weird people who teach you how to do weird things. Like knock on doors and hand tracks out. Or leave little goofy cards instead of a tip at a restaurant. People do this stuff. How about this? Leave a $20 bill instead of your cheap little track. That'll help somebody... Right? This little track. Oh, you know what? This cheap SOB left this thing for. I really want to embrace his faith. Wow. Give me a break. That's not proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That's thinking in an algebraic terms. Oh, this person gets the right information, then they're going to receive. Give me a break. We are all natural evangelists. Let me remove the pressure off of you. We're naturally evangelistic. When we find something excellent, we share it with others. When I find the best restaurant in town, I let everybody know it. When I find the best coffee spot in town, I let everybody know it. I'm not weird. I don't keep it to myself. I hope nobody finds a special coffee place. When we enjoy a team, we let everybody know it. Roll Tide. Like, we are evangelistic. So listen, I'm going to tell you, if you're not sharing Christ, if you're not sharing Jesus, 
you probably have lost a sense and awareness of his all-surpassing excellencies. That's reality. If you're not sharing Christ, maybe you're not tasting that he's good. Maybe you don't see him as excellent anymore. Maybe because you didn't understand that you were chosen before the foundations of the world. You were dead on a table and in outside of time. God, I don't get this. There's so much about the Bible, so much about God that I don't get. My son, we were talking about the Trinity yesterday. You want to feel like a complete moron? Try to explain the Trinity to a six-year-old. He's three and he's one. Okay, I'm taking math right now and I know that three and one, they don't, no, that doesn't work. One plus one plus one does not equal one, dad. Right? It's a paradox. I don't get it. I don't understand it. We can try to make analogies, and, but they all fall short. The same is true with election. I don't fully understand it, but I believe it and I rejoice in it. And it's that deep well for my soul. So all of that chosen priests, holy nation, people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim his excellencies. That's why we're here. This is why we've been chosen. We've been chosen to proclaim his excellencies. But I know, proclaim his excellencies. Well, I'm not a preacher. The funny thing is, this word, this word in the Greek, it's exangelo, exangelo. In the Greek, it's the only place in the entire New Testament that it's used. There are plenty of places where people preach. There's plenty of time the word for preach is used. But that's not the word used here. This word exangelo, what does it mean? Is it, it, mean, it means to proclaim, it means to declare, and it has a twofold meaning. It's about sharing words and deeds. To proclaim something is not to preach something. To proclaim something is to show and tell. It's to show and tell. Peter is telling us right here in this text, if you know who you are, if you know who God has made you to be, if you know the riches that he has given you, if you understand that you are his possession, that knowledge, that faith, that identity will change you into his display people. That show and tell, it just rings in my heart. Because what, what does my son do with his little special treasure box? He keeps it hidden until it's time for show and tell. Right? Then he wants to bring that little treasure box and pull it up in front of the, the classroom. That's what we are. We're God's treasured people, his treasured possession. And he wants us to live our lives in such a way. He wants the indicatives of who we are to come out into imperatives of what we do. He wants us to live in such a way that we're his display people. We show the graciousness of God to those around us. That he wants us to be a living demonstration of his grace. I love it, man. What's the key word in all this that keeps getting repeated in this section? You are his people in awe of his excellencies, displaying his excellencies and declaring those excellencies to the people in your life. Peter is doing this very strategically. And listen, for those of you who've set through sermons on mission and it was just beating at your will, 
Go be a missionary. Go share your faith. What's wrong with it? Or maybe it's playing on your emotions. We, we get up here and we show some really impoverished people. Right? We throw a lot of stats at you about all these people that are going to hell. Right? We really try to play on your emotions or then we just beat on your will. We try to make you go do it. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter's going after our heart. Peter's saying, this is who you are. Look what God has done. He's done it all. Now go live that way. He's not laying out some rules to be followed. He's not laying on a guilt trip. He's going from indicatives to imperatives. He's saying, have you seen? Can I ask you this? That's what Peter's asking us. Have you seen the excellencies? Do you know who God is and what he's done for you in Christ? Are you brought to awe of that? We, we prayed it this afternoon, earlier before the service. Acts chapter 2, awe fell upon every soul. Like they were filled with awe. Are you filled with awe? Have you seen his excellencies? Because you will never glorify God. You will never enjoy God. And you will never declare God to others if you can't see his all-surpassing excellencies to everything else on earth. And you can only see that by divine fiat, by his action. The only way you can see the goodness of Christ, the only way you can see the goodness of God is if he has already chosen you. So I'm going to, three things. We need to know who we are and what he's done. It's our gospel motivation. God saved us. God brought us in. You're not here. I, I love, I love to do this experiment. It took a million, at least, probably more, a million small decisions to get you in this room today. God was over and above all of them. Did he predestine you to be here? Absolutely. Did he do it through those choices? Absolutely. But it took no less than a million choices to be here. It took no less than a million choices to be sitting next to the person you're sitting next to. If you're holding her hand, that was probably a million choices went into that. One day I went to this coffee shop. One day I wanted this latte. One day you could go down the list. Right? And it's up to you. You can live like a deist and go, wow, fate. Or you could give praise to a sovereign God. We need to know who we are and what he's done. God does it. We need to see him in all his excellencies. God allows us to do that. We can't see him without him moving. And third, we need to declare and demonstrate. We need to show and tell with word and deed the excellencies of God. This is what God does through us. It's what God does through us. It's all about what God has done. Now listen, because of this, if you understand that a Christian is these, a Christian, this is their identity. They're God's declare and demonstrate people. Charles Spurgeon said this. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. Why? Because this is what God has done. God has made you, he's chosen you as his race. He's made you a royal priesthood. He's done all of this work so that... This is who we are. This is how we live. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. John Piper says this, doing good deeds before an onlooking world is a necessary part of declaring God's marvelous works and making him a name on the earth. Doing good works, living out our identity as a missionary is necessary. Now, 
I, I, man, I had a bunch of scripture here that I could go through, but I'm not going to. Um, what I want to do is I want to get really, really, really practical. Basically, I could give you a bunch of scriptures where it says, you were saved for good works. What God has done, you need to go live it out. You don't contribute anything to your salvation. Your salvation was all God. That's how I have great confidence because it doesn't rest on my affections. It doesn't rest on my abilities. It doesn't rest on my moral performance. It's all in Christ. But because of what Christ has done, now go live this out. Okay? So I had a lot of scriptures on that. I'm going to skip them right now because I'm going to get really practical to this point. When the people of Jesus' day were confused, what does it mean to be a missionary? What does it mean to live out my faith? If God's done all this stuff in me, what does that mean? This is what Jesus did. Jesus took over 600 Old Testament laws. And when asked, what's what's the most important? If you had to sum all that up, Jesus, 600 laws, that's really difficult. If you had to sum all that up into one or two things, what would it be? Jesus was really clear. He simplified them. He took them down to the lowest common denominator. And what did he say? He said this, love God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is he saying? See God in all his excellencies. See and savor him, know him, and delight in him. Let God in Christ be your center. Let God be your foundation of which the totality of your life is built upon. Let God be your everything. Number one. Okay, we can do that. And what was second? What did Jesus say was the second? Right after it, he said, was what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's that about? See God's excellencies and worship him and then declare those excellencies to your neighbor by loving them. Whoa, that's important, that order. See God's excellencies and worship him and declare those excellencies to your neighbor by loving them. Now listen, we're religious we grew up in moral society. We grew up in, you know, in churches, just like the guy that Jesus was talking to. And the, this is what he does. The guy Jesus is talking to, he gets real convicted. Whoa, love my neighbor as myself. Second most important thing. What about, whoa, 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 whoa. So what does he do? What's he say? Well, he does what all church people do. He tries to explain Jesus' simple teaching away. Well, then who then is my neighbor? It's a great church person question. Well, let's just get this foggy. This is way too clear and way too... Let's get this foggy so I can walk out without really having to do anything. I just want to feel good about myself. So let's get this foggy. Let's stir up some dust in this room so I can't see how clear Jesus' statement is. Love God, love my neighbor. Who then is my neighbor? Jesus sees right through the cloud. He sees right through the dust. He sees right through the man's heart. And he says, this guy, did, he's trying to justify himself. And Jesus says, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. If I had to summarize and simplify it, this is what he says. Your neighbor is the person in front of you, next to you, behind you. Just to clarify, your neighbors are the people who live next to you. Like neighbors? Second most important thing to understand, 
love your neighbor as yourself? Christians, we want to stir it up. Get it foggy, get it foggy. Devotions or, you know, something other than loving real people that live next door to me. Listen, we are God's show and tell people. We are in his treasure box. We are his special possession. And he wants us to display his excellencies to our neighbors, like our neighbor neighbors, like our neighbors, like the people we call neighbors that live across the street and next to us and behind us, the ones we wave at, the ones we talk about, the ones we think are kind of weird, the ones who think we're really weird. Could it really be so simple? We are to see his excellencies and we are to worship him in all of our life. And we are to declare to those excellent, we are to declare those excellencies to our neighbors by, listen, please hear this. Most important thing is real practical. How do we do that? By loving them well. Let me ask you, do you know your neighbors? Do you know their names first and last? Do you know their kids' names? Do you know their stories? Do you know their hopes and dreams? Do you know their faith? Do you know their objections to Christianity? Has your love for God made you into a great neighbor? Has your sight of the excellencies of God made you into a loving neighbor? Do you pray for them like a royal priest? Do you, does your life commend to them a holy nation, a unique culture with God at the center, not just a Christian subculture? How many times have you had them over for dinner? Have you wrecked your schedule in order to help, help them out? Have you shared your deepest fears or regrets with them? Have you even ever borrowed some sugar? Listen, we need to hear this. You are God's missionary. You are his special people who declare him to your neighbors. Listen, this is how the sovereignty and the election plays into this. God has placed you into your neighborhood. God has placed some of those 20% of people that, who don't even know any Christians. God has placed some of those people in your neighborhood so that they can develop a relationship with you so they can see the excellencies of Jesus. That their next step in a relationship with Jesus is actually a step into the relationship with you. That God in sovereignty through a million different choices has had that person move into that neighborhood so that you could develop a relationship with them. So you could love them graciously. That just motivates me. See, this is why I mean a jovial Calvinist. See, how do I get up? People get so weirded out when they have this 
caricature of Calvinism. And they hear me preach the gospel and they hear me ask people to respond and they see evangelical zeal in our church. And they go, well, I don't get it if God just chooses people. Because this is so mm, exciting for us because when I preach the gospel, I have confidence that the sovereign God elected and predestined people to believe in this room. And all they're waiting for is the gospel. And as soon as they hear the gospel, their heart's going to respond and go, yes, that's what I've been waiting for my whole life. That's a story I've been hoping for that now I know to be true. The same thing when I speak to a neighbor, when I love my neighbor, when I talk with my neighbor, God sovereignly put this person in my life. I'm overwhelmed. I just met a new neighbor yesterday and he's got a PhD in philosophy. All of you guys get so annoyed when I start talking philosophically. God gave me a great neighbor with a PhD in philosophy, right? I am stoked about it. God has elected and chosen people to be his people. But right now they are sitting at home watching football just down the street from you, waiting for you to introduce them to the excellencies of Jesus. And listen, this might take years. Relationships take a lot of time to develop. This isn't a bait and switch. If you grow up in the church, man, this isn't like I'm going to try to like act like I'm friends to this person so that I can invite them to a church gathering. Isn't it weird that Jesus didn't say the second most important thing is to share your faith with people? Somebody says, what's the second most important thing? To love them. Love them. Not just share your faith. Is that part of loving them? Absolutely. Tim Keller says this. We shouldn't love people in order to share our faith with them. Rather, we share our faith and ourselves with them in order to love them. So, this is where I'm getting really, really practical. Let's do this. If you don't know your strangers, or if you don't know your neighbors... They're strangers. There we go. If you don't know your neighbors, they are strangers. And you can't love a stranger, right? Teach your kids to avoid strangers. So if you see them as a stranger, you can't love them. So let's do this. Really practical. Here's a goal for you. Here's a goal to love your hood. Okay? This is for you. My wife and I are doing this. What I want you to do is I want you, because you, hey, you are God's people. You are holy. You are chosen. You are his missionary people. We got to love our neighbors. We got to love them well. This is so much better than inviting them to some stupid program. Isn't it? Just love them well. Have them over for dinner. Have a beer with them. (gasps) Smoke some of the devil's tobacco with them. Do it. Goodness gracious. They don't need to come to another Easter presentation. They don't need to come see heaven's gates and hell's flames and be scared to death. They need to be introduced to a life that's lived in awe of the excellencies of Jesus. I'm getting excited. So here's here's what you do. It's easy. It's normal. Go to Google. Everything good starts there. Google Earth. Listen to this. Literally, Google Earth. Take a snapshot, a printout of your neighborhood. Put your house at the center. 
Make sure represented as at least eight houses around you. Okay, I know it's different no matter where you live, if it's in a cul-de-sac or whatever. The eight houses that live closest to them. And then do this with your spouse or your significant other or your family. You're, I want you to fill out for every house, you fill out their names. You fill out their occupation. You fill out everything you know about this person, if you can. Fill out what they're into, what they like, what their story is. And if you don't know them, my wife and I, we only knew a few. If I don't, then this is, what, this is your job. You, you, you need to get to know them. You need to start hanging out outside. Maybe take your playing from the backyard to the front yard. Start going for walks in your neighborhood. Maybe bring some cookies or bring some apples or bring some produce or bring whatever. Introduce yourself to your neighbors. Is it weird? Maybe. Kind of. That we actually, it's so weird that it's weird in our culture to actually know someone. I knock on their door. You have a plate. They're, they got the deadbolt. They're looking through with the little chain. Like, what you trying to sell me? What you trying to sell me? They didn't ride up on bicycles with short sleeve shirt. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, I'll let them in. Right? Or how about this? If you're like me, you, you think you're Superman, ask them for their help. Here's my problem. I think, I think I'm Jesus to my neighborhood. I think I'm there to save everybody. I think I'm there to be the, the one who fixes all their stuff. and They need me and I'm going to be the one. And I don't ask for help from them. Nobody wants to feel like a project. They want to be a person. They want to help me. We had a relationship that broke down. We were constantly helping someone. That relationship broke down. And then my wife, in the sovereignty of God, left uh, something that was baking in the oven. And she went to take the kids to the doctor's office. And she realized at the doctor's office that this thing was still baking in our oven. And so she had to call one of our neighbors that the relationship had broken down. She had to call and she had to ask, can you go into our house and, and take this out of the oven? She was needed. My wife needed this other woman. This woman came in, she took care of her, whatever, whatever happened. But now the relationship, walls have come down. Why? Because we needed something from her. We weren't just constantly trying to serve her. Some of you need to need your neighbors. Plan a neighborhood block party. Go around. This is an easy way to get names. Go around. Say, hey, guys, we want to plan a neighborhood block party. We would love to do this maybe for Halloween or for something like that. Halloween. Oh, God. You can, you know, if you don't like Halloween, you could be a monk, okay? Right? <laughs> you go around and you go, hey, we need to sign this petition. We're going to get the city to block off our streets. Can we get your name? Can we get your number? Can we get this down? Will you sign it? You get their names and your number. You start acting like a priest. You start praying for them on a daily or a weekly basis. Start developing relationships with them. Maybe you invite them over for dinner. You find out they have kids the same age. You start going to sports together, whatever it is. Once you know their names, you've went from stranger to acquaintance. That's great. That's great. Now the next step is to just develop a relationship with them, and that might take years. When you're developing a relationship, then you start hearing their story, hearing their backstory, what makes them who they are, what do they love, what do they hate. And this is so simple. It all starts by walking across the yard. Walking across the yard. And we should get this. Because this is exactly how Jesus started with us. What did Jesus do? He walked across the yard. 
Jesus left his heavenly home and he moved into our neighborhood. He walked across the yard. He greatly inconvenienced himself for our sake, for our good. Why? Because he loved us. He did it because he loved us. Jesus was our great missionary. That God sent Jesus. They determined it from the foundations of the world. And God sent Jesus. And Jesus and God then sent the Holy Spirit. And the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has now sent us to show and tell God's gracious excellencies to our neighbor. Phenomenal. This is who we are. This is what we do. I'm going to read, this is it, this is it. I'm going to read from uh, C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible, though, for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. What he means by that is when we get to heaven, we're going to be glorious creatures. We're going to be looked like gods and goddesses. So it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you would now meet if at all only in a nightmare all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of these destinations listen there are no ordinary people You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lastly, he says this. Next to the blessed sacrament... That's the wine and the bread. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And if he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. Lewis says, that person that lives next to you, He's an eternal being. He's going to live forever somewhere. And every day as we encounter our neighbors, we're helping them either to become their glorified self in Christ. We're leading them one step closer into relation with Jesus Christ or we're leading them one step away from him. He goes to far as say that your neighbor is the, most, is the holiest thing other than the sacrament that you're going to see week in and week out. And Jesus Christ, when he, when he wipes the table and he says, I'll give you two things. 
Love me with everything. See me as all sufficient. See me as all excellent. See me as the source of all joy. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. How are you doing at that? If you live in an apartment, you can figure it out. If you live in your mom's house, figure it out. This is what we're called to do. And I think this is something different. (gasps) Love God and be a great neighbor. I think the city wants to see this. I think your neighbors want to see this. Want to be loved and not some kind of project. Father, we thank you for your grace given to us in the gospel. I thank you for Jesus Christ taking my sin, taking our sin on him and dying on the cross to give us his perfect righteousness in his life. And I know because scripture tells us that this was not an accident. This was not something that you just thought up. Uh, You know, Jesus is 30 years old and you just think, hey, I think I could probably solve this sin thing and have Jesus die on the cross. But it was something that was decided upon within the Trinity before the foundations of the world. And Jesus died for his church. Jesus, Ephesians says, bought his bride. And we, through your sovereignty and through your election and through your grace, are a part of that bride. And as we come to the Lord's table, we thank you for it. We thank you that your body was broken for us and your blood was shed for us to bring us in. And Father, now help us live this identity out. Help us to be your show and tell people. Help us to be your missionaries. Help us to do this well. Help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And all the difficulty and the pain and the struggle that comes with that. We can only do it through the power of the gospel, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we lean on him now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.